Trainingport.net presents Business Aviation Training Report. Hello and welcome to the Business Aviation Training Report. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. This podcast is produced by the leader in online training for business aviation, Trainingport.net. We link the aviation news of the day with the training needs of business aviation operators, management, their support staff, maintainers, and pilots. We want to discuss topics that are important to business aviation professionals. So please send us your questions, comments, and suggestions at podcast at trainingport.net. That's podcast at trainingport.net. Hello, and thanks for listening. Do you duck under the slope? I sure have. Have I intentionally landed long? Sure have. I landed very long at ATC's request in Moses Lake to get out of the way of a 747 during touch and goes for Japan Airlines. I'm not saying it's wrong, but there is a level of risk involved. If your procedures say you should land in the touchdown zone, then that's where you should land. In today's podcast, I'll be reviewing an accident where no one was hurt, thankfully. However, the crew decided to duck under the slope, landed short of the runway, and destroyed the aircraft. The first officer offered to disable the EGPWS, ground proximity warning system, with no prompting from the captain, who agreed. It appears there was a tendency at this operator to duck under the slope and perhaps disable the protection offered by the EGPWS. The occurrence happened in August of 2019 when a Cessna 560XLS crashed while attempting to land at Aarhus, Denmark. Aarhus is spelled A-A-R-H-U-S. Sorry if I mispronounced that. The aircraft struck an ILS antenna and then touched down before the runway. The weather was night IMC, although the crew could see the runway in time to visually fly to the threshold. In an attempt to land and stop as quickly as possible due to a perceived risk of low visibility and fog over the center of the runway, the aircraft struck the ground well before the paved surface. The nose gear collapsed on the landing roll in the grass and a fuel tank was punctured and a fire started when the aircraft came to a stop on the runway itself. Luckily, none of the three crew and seven passengers were injured. The aircraft was a total loss. In the pre-flight briefing, the crew decided not to descend below 17,000 feet if the weather was below minimums at Aarhus. The weather was above Category 1 minima with RVRs at 3,000, 2,300 and 1,300 feet with fog patches and 200 few. The first officer erroneously told the captain the visibility was 2,500 meters when in fact it was 250 meters. The captain briefed the ILS and a clearance was received for the ILS 10 right. With the autopilot engaged and at 2,000 feet, aircraft started to descend on the glide slope. The captain called visual contact with the approach lighting system through shallow fog. The first officer also reported seeing the lights. The gear was selected down and approach flap was set. The aircraft was configured and cleared to land with wind calm. At 1,500 feet, the aircraft was on the glide slope. At 900 feet, the captain disconnected the autopilot and said, runway in sight. He then said he was going to touch down right at the threshold to avoid the fog in the middle of the runway. He began to fly one dot low on the glide slope, but did not communicate this to the FO. Trending lower on the glide slope, the first officer asked if the captain wanted the enhanced ground proximity warning system disabled. The captain agreed and the EGPWS was disabled at 500 feet. The captain noted that the PAPI was three red lights and one white. The aircraft announced minimums with full-scale glide slope deviation, and at this point, the thrust levers were reduced to idle. 
The captain called continue, and the first officer said that he felt the captain had sufficient visual reference to continue the approach and landing. There were no calls made regarding the glide slope deviation. Once closer to the ground, lights were visible, but which lights were interpreted as, as indicating the beginning of the runway was unclear. The captain believed he had crossed the runway threshold and initiated a flare. The aircraft immediately struck the ILS antenna for the opposite runway end, which is located 1,500 feet from the threshold. More antenna, light stands, and infrastructure were hit as the aircraft traveled over the grass. A wing fuel tank was punctured. The nose gear collapsed as it struck an object. The aircraft rolled through the stopway and onto the landing surface, where it came to rest 230 meters from the beginning of the paved surface. The tower could not see the aircraft and was unaware of any occurrence until the first officer said on the tower frequency, Tower, Delta Whiskey Mike, we had a crash landing. The tower responded, say again, but no response was heard. The term Mayday was never used. Crash fire rescue services were alerted. After the aircraft came to a stop, the cabin crew initiated an evacuation after seeing the fuel ignite. The pilots did not tell the cabin to evacuate, nor was an announcement made. The first officer entered the empty cabin and felt the heat from the fire and told the captain. The pilots evacuated to the location of the passengers and cabin crew. The fire destroyed the aircraft. Okay, let's change gears for a moment. In the news is a section of the podcast where I talk about other happenings in aviation. Most sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, is made out of feedstocks such as forestry and agricultural waste used in cooking oil and much more. But there's a company in California called 12 that is making SAF out of carbon dioxide. 12 is quoted as saying, Our process takes CO2, water, and electricity as inputs. We use the electricity to break apart CO2 and water, and then we have catalysts that recombine the elements to make new products. And one of the things that we can make is the building blocks for jet fuel. The company says that this process is much cheaper than current SAF production techniques because the related costs of CO2 capture have also fallen. The company uses an electrolyzer system that uses electricity to break CO2 and water into the components of jet fuel. As with other types of SAF, the aircraft does not require modification. Microsoft and some U.S. airlines are investors in the company. Okay, back to the podcast. Some of the findings from the final report include the following. Licenses and qualifications held by the flight crew, flight and duty times, pre-flight planning phase, the documented technical status of the aircraft, the aircraft weight and balance, issued NOTAMs, chart presentations, the status of navigation aids, and the status of the Category 1 approach and runway lighting system had no influence on the sequence of events. The forecasted weather conditions at the destination were generally consistent with the actual weather reports. The first officer perceived, noted, and read back to the commander the meteorological visibility to be 2,500 meters instead of the reported 250. The reported controlling RVR values were above the applicable Category 1 approach minima and did not prevent the flight crew from performing the ILS for runway 10 right. From an operational point of view, the commander's concern about entering fog patches during the landing was unjustified. Appropriate risk controls like the EGPWS with alerts for excessive glide slope deviations and SOP on callouts and stabilized approach were in place at this operator. Before leaving 2,000 feet on the glide slope, the flight crew obtained visual contact with the approach and runway lighting system for runway 10 right. Passing approximately 1,500 feet, the flight crew agreed on visual contact with the approach and runway lighting system, fog above the middle of the runway, and that the touchdown zone and the runway end were both visible. At approximately 900 feet, the commander disengaged the autopilot. 
The commander communicated his intention of landing in the beginning of the runway, but not his action plan. The first officer did not challenge the intention of the captain. The action plan of the captain was to fly one dot below the glide slope and touching down on the threshold, which required initiation of the flare when passing above the stopway for runway 28 left. The commander started flying below the glide slope. Both pilots accepted and instituted a deactivation of the hardware safety barrier by cancelling the potential EGPWS glide slope alerts for excessive deviations. The first officer seemed to be familiar with the non-standard procedure on flying below the glide slope. Passing 500 feet, the aircraft was still within the operator criteria for stabilized approach. Passing the set ILS approach minima, the aircraft was flying more than two dots below the glide slope and was no longer within the operator criteria for stabilized approach. First officer, as pilot monitoring, believed that the commander, by calling continue, had appropriate visual cues to complete the approach and landing. At low altitude, the first officer made no corrective callouts on altitude, glide slope deviation, or unstabilized approach. The commander noted the availability of the PAPI as a visual cue with one white and three red lights. The first officer, in a critical stage of flight, did not provide effective monitoring and operational support to the commander and did not recognize the unstable approach. The crew could see over the nose of the aircraft at 58 feet when the flare was initiated. The commander most likely mixed up the two red omnidirectional aerodrome fence obstacle lights with the stopway red edge lights to runway 28 left and also misinterpreted the category 1 approach and runway lighting system for runway 10 right. A touchdown on soft but solid ground in a landing attitude at low airspeed absorbed most of the impact forces and reduced the risk of serious injuries to passengers and crew. The flight crew and the cabin crew member did not coordinate the aircraft evacuation process, although it was effective. The commander's rank and experience at the operator might have biased the first officer on final approach to allow concentration of power in one person, steepening the authority gradient. A visual illusion might have provoked a steeper-than-intended short final approach and target fixation on touchdown point on the threshold, leaving out alternate options like aborting the approach. The report summarized the factors of the occurrence as follows. Deviations from SOP in dark night and low visibility combined with the cancellation of the hardware safety barrier compromised flight safety. The commander started flying below the glide slope. Both pilots accepted and instituted a deactivation of the hardware safety barrier by cancelling the potential EGPWS glide slope alerts for excessive glide slope deviation. Both pilots accepted and instituted a deviation from SOP by not maintaining the glide slope upon runway visual reference in sight. At low altitude, the first officer made no corrective callouts on altitude, glide slope, deviation, or unstabilized approach. The confusion over and misinterpretation of the Category 1 approach and runway lighting system resulted in a too early flare and consequently a CFIT. No safety recommendations were issued. Ground proximity systems can be different across aircraft types. The 737 that I fly has options as to which warnings related to the JIPWIZ you can inhibit. Our version does not have runway awareness and advisory system or RAS, so the runway inhibit switch is not installed. However, flap, gear, and terrain inhibit are. Each can be used in different or the same scenarios, such as flap inhibit for single engine approach and landing, gear inhibit for ditching or partial gear extension landing, and terrain inhibit also for ditching. The only time terrain inhibit is used in the checklist is for ditching. Have a look at your manuals and review your approach and landing criteria. Thanks for listening and have a great day. 
That's our podcast for today. Podcast notes will be posted on our website at trainingport.net. Click on podcast. We aim to discuss topics that are relevant to business aviation professionals, and we would love to hear your suggestions for future podcasts. You can email us at podcast at trainingport.net. That's podcast at trainingport.net. This podcast is brought to you by trainingport.net, leader in online business aviation training. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. I'm your host, Brent Fishlock. Have a great day. And thank you for listening to the Business Aviation Training Report. For more information on each episode, visit us at www.trainingport.net slash podcast. Trainingport.net, helping business aviation professionals excel.